Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. Steve, we're back again. I'm Jane Scullion, Steve Holmes, my, my colleague, debating this time the risk factors or risk stratification in COPD. We've done it in asthma and we're looking at it in COPD. And it was interesting when we were debating what we would debate about is that we're not sure we covered all the points. So we're really happy for anyone to contact us to add into the mix or to let us know of of any research that backs up some of the things we're talking about. So pick out your first one, Steve. Pick out the first thing that might make you think somebody with COPD is at risk. I guess the first one we should probably talk about is potentially everybody with COPD is at risk, especially if they're continuing to smoke, especially if they're a typical presentation because they're at risk not only of their COPD and that worsening, but they're also at risk of cardiovascular disease. But I, but I guess the ones that I would go for first would be a patient with COPD who's on a continuous oral corticosteroid dose. Oh, do we still treat people with continuous oral corticosteroids? I thought we'd um, thrown that out a long time ago. Well, the evidence stopped in 2002, didn't it, with our first nice COPD guidelines. But it does sometimes take quite a long time for an evidence base to relate into practice. And sadly, I've still seen a few people coming through from different parts of the country Um patients who've been initiated on oral corticosteroids with COPD and decided that's the best way to leave them and then discharge them the clinic a year or so prior to their move down to the southwest. So the oral corticosteroids make them feel better because it wakes them up, gives them an appetite and they like them. Yes and they get cataracts and diabetes and their bones crumble and so there are a few disadvantages but but yes I think we're all very much aware of that so They should be an easy group to identify. Again, just remembering the fact that some people are on oral corticosteroids for other reasons. Yeah, so that comorbidity that might coexist with the COPD. So that's the continuous ones. And how about the rescue packs, the use of oral corticosteroids for exacerbations? What figure are we going for? Well, I think the gold guidance sort of says um, one admission or two moderate exacerbation, moderate effectively meaning the patient had oral corticosteroids rather than required to go into hospital. I I don't think that's quite as scientific as it sounds because a lot of people are admitted to hospital and don't get any treatment that only a hospital can provide. And a lot of patients manage their COPD at home. So it's a sort of debatable area. But again, I would be thinking anybody having an exacerbation should be considered high risk because they're more at risk of having another exacerbation and potentially a hospital admission and should warrant review. And we've seen that in the evidence, haven't we? That, you know, the first admission, the first exacerbation leads to admission. Maybe the next one's spaced out a bit, but they get closer and closer in in terms of more admissions, predicts more admissions. And how do we make a difference there? I guess, no, it's all right stratifying saying, well, these people are more at risk, but can we make a difference to those patients? 
So I, I think it goes back to the, to the basics that we've got the treatment right for that person, but also the supportive ones. So, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, if uh, somebody still smokes, they're more at risk of exacerbating. So we really have to address smoking cessation. We need to know about things like, you know, the supportive therapies, about um, long-term oxygen therapy. Again, that would suggest that the disease is more severe. And that fits with what we know about the level of obstruction that people have. Although conversely, I've seen people very, very disabled with very mild obstruction and people who are not disabled at all, but, but have you know, really quite severe obstruction when you're looking at, at spirometry. And I, I, I remember hearing John Hurst talk about triple therapy, which fits in very well with the IMPRESS pyramid, where at the bottom of that pyramid, we had the, the triple therapy of flu vaccination, pulmonary rehabilitation and smoking cessation. So it would seem to suggest that if people are moving, if people aren't smoking, um, they're doing better. Where's the evidence for the flu vaccination on admissions? The, the, the flu vaccinations, I think, is a, is, a, is a tricky one. We certainly know it is beneficial, but flu vaccination has less impact on people who are older because their immune system isn't quite as responsive. It has less impact on people with other um, morbidities. So people with several comorbidities who are old don't get as much coverage as a 25 or 30 year old getting a flu vaccination without any comorbidities. However, it's still protecting somewhere between 30 and 60% of the severe infections and may well make, like we think about with um, COVID vaccinations, may well make any disease they do catch less severe. Okay, so, so in asthma, we, we had a sort of cut off of 12 inhalers. We'd start looking at short acting beta agonist use. People would say they tend to use a little bit more because we tend to be more lenient. Does lots of short acting beta agonist predict that somebody's at more risk? I don't know. I'd love to see the evidence for that. Um, I have to confess, um, since I changed my practice to say that if I see somebody with COPD, I bronchodilate initially with long-acting bronchodilators rather than a short-acting bronchodilator. When I review them and then give them uh, the, the short-acting reliever, they tend to say, well, it's rubbish. It doesn't make anywhere near as much difference as the, you know, the long-acting Laba-Lama combination that, that NICE suggests and that seems to widen up their airways more. So a lot of people, I think, being encouraged to exercise more and being bronchodilated tend not to use a lot of SABA. Yeah, so it's about the right therapy. And I think it goes back to that, you know, um, some is habitual use because people have always used it and we've always in, in, encouraged it. But even the short-acting beta agonists are not benign, are they? They can make you tachycardic, make more anxious and muscle problems. So I, I think it shows that we either need to be thinking, are they on the optimal treatment and giving them that? in which case it should reduce the use of, of short-acting beta agonists. So it's a pointer, isn't it, rather than a, a set in stone. And although I've seen the evidence of um, short-acting beta agonist hyper-responsiveness in about 17 or 18 trials in asthma, I haven't seen that hyper-responsiveness being demonstrated so well in a COPD population. And again, if someone is aware of that, it'd be great to see a, a systematic review of trials of um, Sabi use and hyper-responsiveness in that environment. Yep, so that, that's a, a useful thing. So waiting for you all out there, your researchers and scientists, to let us know the answer. 
that's what that's what they're there for to help clinicians apparently <laughs> so that so lots of new challenges there i get i guess probably a lot of those continuous oral steroids being admitted um oral corticosteroids and people on long-term oxygen i can easily identify and they're relatively small numbers on the computer system so i can prioritize those quite easily in a primary care setting um what I think gets harder is, and I can probably do that with sabers. What gets harder is when I try to um, evaluate the level of dyspnea and, as you mentioned earlier, obstruction, and and prioritise those people at a systems level. I can do it on a review, but perhaps not so easily by a computer. And we're quite dependent on computers to give us the answers, aren't we? And it's a computer age. I, I guess the other thing that is or does put people at risk is, is having comorbidities. And I know that, you know, within the hospital setting, people often come in and it's a COPD exacerbation or, or they're admitted with that, but it's not that when you start to unpick it and that people are frail, have other things going on. Um, so sometimes it's the comorbidity that puts a person at risk rather than the actual COPD. And I think over the last three to five years, I've become much more um, interested in getting CT scans on people with COPD who are exacerbating frequently. And quite a few of those do have elements of significant bronchiectasis in association with their COPD. So um, I think we do have to think about respiratory comorbidities, but also I don't think we do well as a respiratory community and as a nation in managing people with COPD's cardiovascular risk. No, and, that, and that's as, I mean, as you've always said, people with COPD die of cardiovascular problems as much as they do as COPD, if not more. What about smokers? What can we do about people who continue to smoke with COPD? It's very difficult. So I think everyone has a trigger point where you have a, a, an opportunity at that brief intervention to make an impact on people. I think what we know is that, you know, in smokers, the treatments are probably less effective that we're giving them anyway, in their response to oral corticosteroids for exacerbations it is less. But it's a difficult one because COPD just doesn't make you breathless. It can also make you fairly anxious and miserable and restrict your life. And for a lot of people, the excuse is the only thing they've got is smoking. Yeah. And we've got to do something about that still. And I, and I guess probably perhaps if we thought about it and I can hear some of my physio colleagues coming and say, you, but you haven't said much about pulmonary rehabilitation. Do you think that high risk people with COPD are people who haven't undertaken um, pulmonary rehab or is that more to do with their personality? I, I think, and, you know, hats off to all those providing pulmonary rehab, brilliant. I think that reduced exercise capacity is probably a good indicator that somebody's at risk because people are sitting around more, they're more at risk of things like PE. And we know we find PE in quite a few people admitted with a COPD exacerbation. Um, interesting, the bit of research I always liked was the bit where you could tell if somebody was going to admit to hospital because their fridge was empty. So they'd eaten all the consumables that would go off during their admission. So planned admission, due to lots of reasons, also drives the population. And for some of the, the, you know, the people that we see that come in on a more regular basis, you have to think, you know, what else is going on? Because if hospital is a nicer place for them to be than in their own home, 
then we have to think about, you know, the social side of everything, the support services that are going on. Because for some people, hospital is warm, you get fed, there's people to talk to and everything else. So I think drivers of hospital admissions or people at risk go far beyond the actual disease process. I think you're, I think you're right there. And it's, it, it's an interesting area to sort of think through for future research. I think some of the terms we use, thank goodness you managed to get into hospital today. We're always here if you need us gives them a message that they wish that they can go back to if they need to. And, and I was interested in your comment about the fridge. A lot of people that I see as they're more vulnerable now don't particularly use their fridge, but are very experienced with their freezer, where they get out the, their ready meal in a freezer to put into the microwave or someone does for them. But, but it's, it's a sad indictment of society where people are going into an environment that may well have other infections that leave them more at risk because we aren't able to support them adequately in the community with community teams of nurses, um, social services and carers in that sort of environment if they don't have family. And don't forget the physios and OTs. I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't dare do that. Otherwise, I'm sure someone would pick on me. Anything else we need to add into the risk stratification, Steve? I can't think of anything specifically at the moment. I think probably we could be thinking about mental health if they've got significant depression or anxiety as leaving them more at risk. But, but again, it does go back to that being more holistic and targeting those who have been admitted because they're more likely to be readmitted and working with them effectively to try to empower them. So what we're trying to do is act now and make sure that the impact and the support we have with people in the present reduces future risk. I think that's a very fair comment, Jane. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe for future podcasts. Goodbye.